1: Hey, welcome to the show. Yep, I'm uh, I'm a little bit, uh, little rusty, a little under the weather. I don't know. Some people have caught on, so I'm just going to go ahead and come clean. You've been hearing a number of best of shows this week, and the reason for that is because uh, because uh, old Brian here has been sicker than a dang dog. And here's the crazy thing about it. Uh, yeah, and I'm just going to you know, not to scare anybody. I've been pretty isolated here, but uh, my symptoms are absolutely consistent with uh, COVID-19. And so, yeah, it hasn't been much of a picnic. And, and here's the really crazy thing about it. Uh, when it finally got to the point where I'm like, you know what, I should probably go get tested just to see if this is what I think it is and what it seems to be acting like. Uh, so uh, my wife graciously entered all of the information in, set up uh, you know the, the information ahead of time so that I could go to a nearby testing facility. And we went, and it was probably I don't know ten minutes before uh, ten minutes before five o'clock in the afternoon. And we get to the place. We're thankful that uh, there's not a huge line of cars. I've I've been tested once before, and I mean there was like seriously twenty or more cars ahead of us. In this case, there was maybe a total of eight cars, and we pulled up to the end of the line and thought, thank goodness, this isn't going to take for for you know take us very long. It's, it's not one of those places where they have to probe your brain with a Q-tip, but uh, just, a, you know, a saliva testing uh, facility. And pretty soon here comes this uh, medical personal, personnel guy in his scrubs on a scooter. He comes up and we see him talking to uh, two of the cars ahead of us. And then he comes up to our window and says, I'm sorry, but we're at capacity. And so you'll have to come back tomorrow. And I thought, well, Okay. If it's not that big of a deal to them, it's not that big of a deal to me. So I'll just go back home and tough it out, and uh, we'll figure it out from there. This is one of the things that, uh, to me, drives home the, the nature of bureaucracy and the, the trouble with putting high-trust issues into the hands of bureaucracy. That's the kind of stuff you get. There was nobody behind us. No one. And I don't know how long it takes to to do the saliva test. I, you know, I'm I'm imagining, you know, you spit into a tube, they verify your information, and you're on your way. Maybe there's a lot more. Maybe maybe something, you know, more detailed has to take place. But the bottom line is, we in good faith went to be tested. And without a, a huge glut of people there, I mean, they turned away three cars. Ours was the third car you would think that they would be able to just say okay well we're going we're not going to be taking any cars after you or something i don't know but it just it, to me that points out the the bureaucratic nature of well we can only have this many i've heard of this before for instance with like the va hospitals where somebody needs an mri but oh you know according to the bureaucratic rules according to the the words on this clipboard we can only do so many a day and so patients that may have been waiting for weeks, possibly even months, they show up to get their MRI. Nope, sorry, the moose out front should have told you we can only take this many. Even if there's not a waiting line. Anyway, we're gonna delve into this a little bit more. By the way, I'm I'm feeling much better. It's uh it's mainly just uh, boy, whew, talk about suck the wind out of your sails and and make you tired that's uh, that's what kind of clued me into uh, maybe this is more than just a cold but as you might imagine it's been an interesting election week and bygar i've got a lot to say so let's let's dive right in we're going to talk among other things about how if government is this corruptible and incompetent and i'm not talking about you know the fact that they couldn't test me when i wanted to be tested i'm talking about the ones that can't even count ballots without showing how corruptible and incompetent they are if if government is that poor at handling important tasks, why on earth would we expect it to manage a virus or our health care? Something to think about. We're also going to talk about uh, yesterday was the 5th of November. I don't know if you watched V for Vendetta. That's kind of been a tr- tradition in my household for a while. I didn't get a chance to watch it this year, but... I do love that movie, and we're going to have a little discussion about how crises are exploited in order to destroy liberty. You want to talk about life-imitating art? There is some solid proof that that kind of stuff happens. Also, uh, I know that there's a lot of concern about the uh, presidential election and, you know, who's going to win. and, And, you know, what can I say? It's it's pretty clear that there's some, some interesting manipulations going on. And I'm not saying, you know, Trump is having this election stolen from him. I will say it's within the possibilities. There's nothing straightforward about this balloting process at this point. And so, you know, you don't have to be a conspiracy nut to think, well, it looks like somebody could be taking advantage. But there is one thing I can tell you for certain, and that is, No matter who ends up in the White House come January 20th, some things are not likely to change. And I want to thank Judge Andrew Napolitano for his recent essay, which spells out how the U.S. government will still have a voracious appetite for spying on us, no matter who is president. Kind of sucks to realize this, but it's the truth. Here's the best part, though. We're going to start with the good news. The best part of the election outcome so far this week is that it showed the elites, the ones who've been pushing this woke ideology, this identitarian ideology, use the correct pronouns, you know, feel bad because you're all racist, you just don't know it. Basically, that got stuck in their ear and broke off, and that is a good thing. I'm reading a column here from Spiked. This is from uh, the U.K., Sean Collins is the U.S. correspondent. It's titled A Painful Reminder for Elites. The strength of Trump's showing shows there are still millions of people who want a different kind of politics. Here's what he says. He says, as we go to press, the U.S. presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden has yet to be decided. According to Real Clear Politics, Biden leads with 225 electoral college votes to Trump's 213, with the outcome inconclusive in nine states. The election now looks like it will be subject to a drawn-out process over the next week or longer, with officials counting mailed-in ballots in these toss-up states and lawyers gearing up to do battle in the courts. Now, he says a national election is an opportunity to take the political pulse of the people. And although we didn't get a final verdict on whether Trump or Biden will be leading the world's largest power, the initial results that came in during the night nevertheless revealed much about the state of American politics and society. And here's one of the best takeaways of all. The polls and the media got it badly wrong again. The real strength of the election, he says, has been the strength of, of Trump's showing. Polls had predicted a clear win for Biden. Forecaster 538 predicted that Trump would win Ohio by a tiny 0.8%, yet Trump won the state by 8%. As commentator Henry Olson puts it, this was a polling error of mammoth proportions. The mainstream media were worse, with some daydreaming about a landslide for the Democrats. Living in a bubble, these media partisans for Biden could never imagine a Trump win, given that they didn't know anyone who supported the worst president ever. Something else we learned is that the shy Trump voter is real. In many respects, you can't blame the pollsters for getting it wrong, because there were many shy Trump voters who did not want to speak to anyone they didn't trust, about their voting intentions. Why is this? Because they know they'll face condemnation from self-righteous liberal elites for daring to support Trump. That size, the decisable section of society feels it can't openly express its support for a candidate who garnered the votes of about half the adult population. Well, that's not healthy for democracy. Sean Collins goes on to say demographic voting patterns refuted simplistic identity politics. He says, for years, the identitarian left has pushed the line that Trump is a white supremacist. Yet, Trump made big electoral gains in Hispanic and black populations, while overall losing some support from white males. Whoops, there goes that narrative. Cubans and other Latinos gave Trump the edge in Florida. In 2016, the people of Star County in Texas, which is 96% Latino, voted heavily for Clinton. This year, there was a huge swing towards Trump, with Biden winning by just 5%. Now, there's more to this. We'll get to it in a few moments, but can you see that the narrative was wrong? And that's true regardless of whether Trump ekes out a victory here or not. All that lecturing, in fact, man, I got lectured by a family member on Election Day just for this. How could you vote for a racist? How could you vote for a racist? And then I challenged her. Explain to me how he's a racist. Prove to me That this guy's a racist. Well, he said he joked about uh, people of color. He joked about Hispanics or something like, yeah, under your standard, you're a racist, too, because I've heard you say jokes that uh, could could be applied in, in that manner. Bottom line is, if he's a racist, he's a racist with an awful lot of support from the people supposedly that he hates.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'll admit it, I am not hitting on all cylinders today. In fact, I'm I'm weak. Couldn't pull a wet noodle out of a bucket of grease, so to speak. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my desire to speak is stronger than my desire to lay in bed and feel bad for myself, so... I have some great things to share with you in the middle of a a column here from Sean Collins from spikedonline.com. And it was a painful reminder for the elites. This election, no matter how it ultimately turns out, at least at the presidential level, there are some huge lessons to be drawn here. And among those lessons are the fact that Democratic voting patterns refuted simplistic identity politics. The shy Trump voter turns out to be a real thing. The polls and the media got it terribly, terribly wrong. And here's another point. Class came to the forefront. Instead of party support being sharply divided by race, the shift of Latinos and black Americans meant that they joined many white working class voters in forming a multi-racial coalition behind Trump. At the same time, the divide between the college educated for Biden versus those without an advanced degree for Trump became more decisive. And although not a fully consolidated trend, this restructuring of politics on a class basis holds out the possibility of bringing politics back to people's needs and material interests. And here's yet another point. Biden's pitch did not excite. Biden sought to make this election a referendum on Trump's personality and temperament, offering to restore the soul of the nation. Well, for his part, Trump cooperated with Biden's plan by adopting his trademark erratic behavior and statements, including a disastrous debate performance. But even with Trump's assistance, the vote showed that Biden did not exploit Trump's character flaws in a meaningful way. Meanwhile, Sean Collins writes, it became clear that Biden's deliberately boring policy light approach had a downside. It failed to excite voters. As the election neared, Trump was able to more effectively paint Biden in a negative light and more people became frightened by the prospect of Biden introducing a COVID lockdown or giving a green light to continued rioting in city streets. This is one of the things that makes me the happiest, and that is Trump's COVID-defying ground game made a difference. The Trump campaign largely ignored COVID and ran a traditional ground game, knocking on doors and holding huge rallies. The Biden campaign, like its basement-dwelling leader, seemed intimidated by COVID, and didn't interact with the public in the same way. Trump's campaigning also sent an indirect message, we want to get on with life and not let COVID get in the way. And this had to be to Trump's benefit. But here's the negative side. Trump could not capitalize on his incumbency. Going into the election, Trump's significant shortcomings put him in an unusual situation, writes Sean Collins, a president running for re-election who didn't seem to have the traditional advantages of incumbency. Trump still appeared to be the outsider and challenger, the uncouth man who the liberal elite didn't think belonged in their club. For sure, he faced unprecedented opposition, having to deal with multiple attempts, the Russia and Mueller impeachment from the Democrats, to have him ejected from office. But Sean Collins points out Trump has been his own worst enemy. Among other things, he fumbled the response to COVID with press conferences that reminded people on a daily basis that he was unfit for the job. Trump's performance ratings remained starkly low. He was never able to expand his base of support against a faltering candidate like Biden. He should have done better. Stepping back, says Sean Collins, the big question at stake in this election was the fate of the global wave of populism, which in the U.S. takes the form of Trumpism. The hopes of globalist and technocratic elites, both in the U.S. and in Europe, were hanging on Biden to win and to restore the old pre-populist order, they were clearly overconfident going into this election. Of course, Biden may ultimately prevail and win, but even in that case, these liberal elites have been given a scare and a reminder that there are millions of Americans who don't buy into their vision. He says Trump is much too flawed to lead and channel a populist upsurge in a productive direction. There was always a real risk of putting the interests of ordinary people in the hands of such an unserious individual that as he went down, he would take the broader movement behind him. Well, given that the new populism in the U.S. is still not fully established, it remains more of a way to express a rejection of the elite rather than a coherent and organized opposition. It is vulnerable to dissipation. But the unexpected stalemate on election day showed that the new populism is not going down without a fight. Knowing they would be roundly vilified by the mass media, union workers in the Rust Belt voted for Trump. Knowing that the identitarians would call them traitors and accuse them of acting white, Latinos and black workers voted for Trump. And Sean Collins says this combative response suggests that America's populism is more than a moment and that post-Trump, it will remain a force to be reckoned with. Again, I'll have a link to this at the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. I mean, there's a lot of spin going on, right, from from all different sides. But I think with all the drama and spin, Sean Collins has a pretty solid take on this. And so if you're one of those glass-half-full individuals, there it is for you. It's not all bad news. I understand this is stressful for people who, you know, really thought, well, Trump should have pulled this out, or we're, we're seeing the election being stolen right before our eyes I'll grant you it's a possibility. And and it troubles me from the standpoint of, you know, our system is it, is it really that malleable, that corruptible and easy to manipulate? That's a little bit scary. But let's try to see the bright side of things. I I have to I have to give credit to Kurt Mercadante who if if you don't follow him on Twitter, you really should. I've got to have him back on the show just because he is such an incredible breath of fresh air. In, uh, in taking life by the horns and, and refusing to be, you know, a victim of circumstances. And I love what he had to say. He had a tweet yesterday here. I've got to pull this up. I want to get this word for word just because it, uh, it was so profound and so on target. He said, my family and I will thrive no matter who is president. Trump is going to Trump. Biden's going to Biden. Mercadantes are going to Mercadante. I thought that was pretty cool until I put it up. The hides are going to hide. Oh, well, shoot. (laughs) But you get his point. It doesn't matter. And it shouldn't matter in the sense that you and I have a lot more control over our destiny than you would think is, is tied to simply who occupies the White House. I know we're supposed to pretend it's the most important thing ever. This is the most important thing. And I just, you know, at the risk of sounding like, like a heretic, I've, I've got to say, this country is not going to be saved from the top down. It's never going to happen that way. That's, that's too much like socialism. That's too much like central planning. Someone at the top makes the decisions and it just trickles down and everybody else follows suit. If the promise of America, and I mean the principles and practices on which this nation were founded, the concepts of personal liberty, freedom of conscience, free markets, private property, if these things are going to be defended, they will be defended starting at the individual level. And when enough individuals take seriously these things, claim these rights, defend them, use them, that's when you will see the shift begin to take place. Not because someone in charge said, okay, you have permission now to be free. This is where we've got it uh, back assward here. It's just, you know, it's not going to work from the top down. It never will. So stop acting like a serf. Stop acting like someone who has to beg permission from the Lord and Lady of the Manor to go out there and live your life and start reclaiming that freedom. You'll be amazed at what you can do at the individual level. Most people are surprised. Trump is going to Trump. Biden is going to Biden. You and I should be doing whatever it is that you and I would do, regardless of who happens to occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's really that simple. Don't make it harder than it has to be.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to our sponsors, including Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. If you live in or around the Salt Lake City area, if you'll be passing through the Salt Lake City area anytime soon, it would be worth your time to swing through Nicky's and stretch your grocery dollar as far as you need it to go. They are a food wholesale warehouse. They get terrific buys on food that uh, would have gone to restaurant supply houses and so forth. And you you can buy in bulk. You can buy smaller individual items. You find an incredible variety. Most importantly, you will save a whole lot of money. And they do accept EBT, they accept all major credit cards, and everything comes with a money back guarantee. Every bit of it. Pretty amazing stuff. Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, check them out on uh, Facebook. That's where you can uh, actually subscribe, get uh, weekly updates. They actually update a couple times a week, send you pictures of whatever they've got that's arrived. And the directions are found there on their website or their uh, Facebook page as well. Let's talk about another bright side of this topsy-turvy election week. And that is how this 2020 presidential election fiasco, specifically the ballot counting uh, problems that we're seeing right now, hold a warning about central planning. Leave it to uh, two of the superstars from the Foundation for Economic Education, Dan Sanchez and John Miltimore, to, uh, to pen an article explaining how government can't count ballots how can it possibly manage a pandemic or our health care? I don't think it's a stretch to be asking this question, by the way. You know, I've been skeptical of government's ability to handle, you know, particularly the, the coronavirus pandemic, you know, to start with. But here we have a perfect illustration of why we shouldn't be putting that much trust in the authorities because... They can very easily be co-opted or manipulated into doing things that are totally against the uh, interests of the people that they're supposed to be serving. Dan Sanchez and John Miltimore say elections are a nasty business, but sometimes they can be clarifying. We don't yet know who won the presidential election. We may not know for days or weeks to come. This stems largely from the ineptitude Americans witnessed on Election Tuesday. And it wasn't just that the, the fact that the pollsters once again failed disastrously or the networks fumbled their election coverage. The bigger issue is that America's governing bodies look incapable of managing something as simple as a vote. Something Americans have managed to do efficiently for centuries without the benefit of computers, digital communication, and mass transportation. Now, as Americans, we should find this embarrassing. As the journalist Glenn Greenwald observed on Wednesday, countries with far fewer resources and less advanced technology regularly manage to hold speedy, efficient elections. This is something the U.S. failed to do on Tuesday. Greenwald said, quote, The richest and most powerful country on Earth, whether due to ineptitude, choice, or some combination of both, has no ability to perform the simple task of counting votes in a minimally efficient or confidence-inspiring manner. As a result... The credibility of the voting process is severely impaired, and any residual authority the U.S. claims to spread democracy to lucky recipients of its benevolence around the world is close to obliterated. At 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, the day after the 2020 presidential elections, the results of the presidential race as well as control of the Senate are very much in doubt and in chaos, watched by the rest of the world deeply affected by who who rules the still imperialist superpower. Greenwald says the U.S. struggles and stumbles and staggers to engage in a simple task managed by countless other less powerful and poorer countries, counting votes. Some states are not expected to finish their vote counting until the end of this week or beyond, end quote. And at this point, John Miltimore and Dan Sanchez say this, to be blunt, is unacceptable. The most prosperous country in the world cannot manage to do something as simple as collect and count ballots. Think about that for just a moment. Unfortunately, this incompetence carries consequences that are quite real. Americans are beginning to lose faith in the integrity of elections. This is not just the voters in the fever swamps of Twitter. Many impressive journalists, thinkers, and students of various political stripes have expressed alarm at what they've witnessed. In the last 24 hours. And by the way, they include some of these tweets in their article. People asking questions like, hey, things are getting very sketchy. Or those 300,000 ballots not delivered after uh, DeJoy ignored the judge's ruling. Many had set election day as the cutoff for mail-in ballots. Another simply asking, what is going on in Arizona? And here again, John Miltmore and Dan Sanchez say many readers can probably relate to these concerns. But the reality is, the inability of election authorities to do something as simple as gather and count votes is undermining America's faith in the constitutional system. As Greenwald notes, this is dangerous, but it's also rational. Because of the power and breadth of the federal government, there's a great deal at stake in presidential elections. Too much at stake. Americans sense this, and when they see mail in ballots missing, precincts that can't get votes counted, voting delays, errors in data feeds, and other problems, well, it naturally creates a feeling of uncertainty. And uncertainty in turn breeds distrust. Now, one could argue that this year's election was unique turnout was unprecedented, at least in raw numbers, perhaps in part because of the coronavirus pandemic and the record number of mail-in ballots. Perhaps that's true. But they say the fact remains, how hard is it to collect and count ballots? They're not trying to disparage the people working these elections. The process is probably far more complicated than many Americans realize. But this is true of most systems, which brings them to a key point. Is collecting and counting ballots more difficult? than running a vast healthcare system that involves pricing, insurance, medication, billing, and the very lives of individuals? Come on, the answer is no. Is collecting and counting ballots more difficult than attempting to manage the spread of an invisible virus without ruining the livelihoods, spirits, educations, and the very lives of hundreds of millions of people? Again, the answer is no. No. In some ways, we should not be surprised to see governing bodies fail to manage something as elementary as an election. For decades, we've watched the United States Post Office bungle something as simple as collecting and delivering mail. The USPS bleeds billions of dollars every year while doing something a private company would make a profit doing while delivering a substandard service. By the way, this is why libertarians have been arguing for more than a century that the post office should be subjected to competition. It's no coincidence that the election debacle of 2020 happened in the year the post office played its largest role ever. It was bound to happen. As the economist Ludwig von Mises observed in his 1944 book, Bureaucracy, government agencies can never be anywhere near as efficient as private businesses. The competitive market compels entrepreneurs and their employees to competently and efficiently serve the buying public or go out of business. And profit and loss accounting enables them to figure out exactly what's working and what's not. In contrast, as Mises wrote, quote, public administration, the handling of the government apparatus of coercion and compulsion must necessarily be formalistic and bureaucratic. No reform can remove the bureaucratic features of the government's bureaus. Bureaus, rather. It is useless to blame them for their slowness and slackness. It is vain to lament over the fact that the Assiduity, assiduity and carefulness and painstaking work of the average bureau clerk are, as a rule, below those of the average worker in private business. In the absence of an unquestionable yardstick of success and failure, it's almost impossible for the vast majority of men to find that incentive to utmost exertion that the money calculus of profit-seeking business easily provides. It's of no use to criticize the bureaus, the bureaucrats' pedantic observance of rigid rules and regulations. All such deficiencies are inherent in the performance of services which cannot be checked by money statements of profit and loss, end quote. Now, this isn't to say that bureaucracy is inherently evil. Mises clarified, bureaucracy in itself is neither good nor bad. But he said there's a field namely the handling of the apparatus of government in which bureaucratic methods are required by necessity. And elections, for example, are necessarily a bureaucratic affair, even if that means they often get bungled. But the big problem is when governments bureaucratize things that don't need to be bureaucratic. The evil lies in, as Mises said, the expansion of the sphere in which bureaucratic management is applied. For instance, health care does not need to be bureaucratic it can and has been provided through the market and to the extent that it has been market forces and signals have made it better but if healthcare were socialized as in a single payer scheme it would have to be managed bureaucratically and would inevitably suffer all the deficiencies of a bureaucracy meaning ineptitude slowness neglect etc just imagine having to deal on the dmv deal with the uh, dmv or the usps for your medical treatment this is a fantastic article. Please check it out in the show notes at the Again, Dan Sanchez and John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. This was one of the bright points of an otherwise tumultuous week. This is the Brian
0: Hyde Show. This is the is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, a couple other things I want to get off my chest before this hour is up. One of them is a reminder from Judge Andrew Napolitano that no matter how this election outcome plays out, the U.S. government's appetite for spying on Americans will remain voracious. And this is something that I know a lot of people don't want to consider because, you know, we're caught up in the the uh, whole election mindset and, well, we got to make sure that we get the right person in the White House. But just keep in mind there's a lot that doesn't change when the, the person in the White House does change. The unelected, bureaucratic nature of government still pretty much stays the same. And this is especially true as it applies to those agencies that uh, spy on us ostensibly for our own protection. Judge Napolitano says, in 2019, agents of the state and federal governments persuaded judges to issue 99% of all requested intercepts. Now, an intercept is any type of government surveillance, telephone, text message, email, even in person. And these intercepts are that, uh, these are intercepts that are theoretically based on probable cause of crime, as is required by the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, the 2019 numbers which the government just released while we were all watching the end of the presidential campaign, are staggering. The feds, local and state police in America engaged in two, I'm sorry, 27,431,687 intercepts on 777,840 people. From those intercepted and uh, those that were intercepted, they arrested 17,101 people and obtained convictions on the basis of evidence obtained via the intercepts on 5,304. That is a conviction rate of 4% of all people spied upon by law enforcement in the United States. So here's the background. He says, readers of this column are familiar with the use by federal agents of the Foreign Intelligence Service Act, or Surveillance Act rather, to obtain intercepts using a standard of proof considerably lesser than probable cause of crime. That came about because Congress basically has no respect for the Constitution and authorized the FISA court to issue intercept warrants if federal agents can identify an American or foreign person in America who has spoken to a foreign person in another country. Call your cousin Florence or a bookseller in Edinburgh or an art dealer in Brussels. Under FISA, the feds can get a warrant from the FISA court to monitor your future calls and texts and emails. He says the FISA system is profoundly unconstitutional. The Fourth Amendment expressly requires that the government, state and federal, can only lawfully engage in searches and seizures pursuant to the warrants issued by a judge based upon a showing under oath of probable cause of crime. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled consistently that intercepts and surveillances constitute searches and seizures. The government searches a database of emails, texts, or recorded phone calls and seizes the data it wants. Thus, the judge says, when the feds have targeted someone for prosecution and lack of probable cause of crime about that person, they resort to FISA. And this is not only unlawful and unconstitutional, but it's also corrupting, as it permits criminal investigators to cut constitutional quarters by obtaining evidence of crimes outside the scope of the Fourth Amendment. The use of the Fourth Amendment is the only lawful means of engaging in surveillance sufficient to introduce the fruits of the surveillance at a criminal trial. So if the feds happen upon evidence of a crime from their FISA-authorized intercepts, they then need to engage in deceptive acts of parallel construction. That connotes the false creation of an ostensibly lawful intercept in order to claim that they, lawfully, they obtained lawfully what they already had obtained unlawfully. Do you follow? Law enforcement personnel then fake the true means they use to acquire evidence, even duping the prosecutors for whom they work, so the evidence will appear to have been obtained lawfully and thus can be used at trial. At its essence, Judge Napolitano says, parallel construction is a deception on the court. If the deception is perpetrated under oath, it's perjury, a felony. And he says this corruption of the Constitution by those in whose hands we have reposed it for safekeeping happens every day in America. He says the FISA-induced corruption has regrettably bled into the culture of non-FISA law enforcement and even into the judiciary. He says the statistics I cited above are not from FISA. Those numbers are secret. Rather, the statistics reflect the government's voracious appetite for spying that now pervades non-FISA law enforcement. This is so because judges accept uncritically the applications made before them, for intercept or surveillance warrants. So, even though the Fourth Amendment permits judges to issue warrants only upon the probable likelihood of evidence of a crime in the place to be searched or the person or thing to be seized, the attitude of what constitutes probable cause has been attenuated by both the law enforcement personnel who seek warrants and the judges who hear the applications. We know this because we have not seen a number like 99% of all warrant applications every one supposedly based on probable cause of crime, granted. Nor have we seen only 4% of those intercepts resulting in convictions. So the rational conclusion is that the government's appetite for surveillance remains voracious. And judges whose affirmative duty it is to uphold the Constitution as against the other two branches of government have done very little to abate this. So what becomes of the 96% of those upon whom the government spied? Well, that depends on whether the government charges anyone. Judge Napolitano says if the person is charged and acquitted and law enforcement unlawfully obtained evidence against that person, his remedy is either persuading the court to suppress the evidence, thus resulting in the acquittal, or suing the law enforcement agents who unlawfully spied on him. Yet under current Supreme Court decisions about who can sue the government, if the government has spied on you and not charged you and not told you, you have no cause of action against the law enforcement agents who did this. Stated differently, in 2019, at least 760,739 people in America were spied upon pursuant to judicial orders allegedly based upon probable cause of crime and were neither charged nor informed of the spying. Napolitano says his Fox colleagues often deride his attacks on those who fail to safeguard their privacy, because they argue we have no privacy. Yet, as Justice Lewis Brandis wrote, the most comprehensive of rights is the right to be left alone. He says, if we forget this, my colleagues will have the last laugh. If we expose its violation, we might know the joys of unmonitored personal fulfillment. I like the fact that he uses that uh, as as an explanation because you behave differently when you know or when you suspect that someone is watching you, meaning you're not free. Every one of us behaves differently when we believe we are under observation. So if you think someone is listening to your phone calls, it's not that you were going to go out and commit crime or you were trying to, you know, become a drug lord and plan some major terrorist event or something like that. It's just simply you're not free. To speak your mind. You're not free to express yourself. Because in the back of your mind, you know that someone, the modern-day equivalent of the East German Stasi, is sitting there with an ear to the the headphone listening to see if there's anything that, uh, that needs to be looked into. All that information being vacuumed up and kept just in case someday we may need to build a case against you. Crazy stuff. Let me just take a very brief moment here. We've only got a couple of minutes left here, but uh, V for Vendetta. The 5th of November has come and gone. Remember, remember the 5th of November. I am going to include an article from Daniel Buck in the show notes. And I'm going to strongly recommend take a look at it. The article is titled V for Vendetta Shows How Crises Are Exploited to Destroy Liberty. And if you haven't seen the movie, I won't spoil it for you other than um, it's, it's supposedly set in a dystopian future. If, in fact, the funny thing is, if I'm not mistaken, 2020 is the year in which uh, V for Vendetta was set. But it shows how a crisis, a disease, no less, is exploited to bring people under the heel of an all-powerful government, and it's about how an individual fights back against that. Powerful, powerful stuff. I will, I will tell you this, it's not a show necessarily for young members of the family. There's some uh, pretty bad language. There's some adult situations. There's some cartoonish violence in it. But overall, it gives a pretty good accounting of how fear, and particularly fear of a virus, can be parlayed into um, absolute government control curfews, monitoring, you know, all kinds of things that, that run very counter to the traditions of freedom that most of us have taken for granted for quite some time. So if you haven't seen it before, you might want to consider it. Maybe there's a, there's a, you know, airline version out there that doesn't have the bad language, but it's a story worth considering because you're seeing it played out before you in real life today. Yes, life does sometimes imitate art.